This is Deepa from DeepaBarrow.com, and you're listening to the Deep Beauty Podcast. Hey guys, this is Deepa, and I'm back with another episode of the Deep Beauty Podcast. We have a pretty important one to talk about today, and it's a pretty heavy subject, but it's a pretty important one that needs to be discussed, especially in the South Asian community. I have Antara Mason with us today, and she's going to talk to us about everything that she's gone through from adoption to her brother who actually committed suicide. So, you know, it's not a fun subject to talk about, but it's a very, very important one. And I'm sure Antara can give some really great insight. Um, and for those of you that are out there that feel like you have no alternative, listen in. Okay, so Antara, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. I'm a little bit tired because I work from 3.45 in the morning until they let me go home, which is usually around like 10 o'clock. So... Um, yeah, I've already been up for like 12 hours. Oh my gosh. Wow. Are you, so you work as a trained esthetician and you do microblading and you're also a trained first responder. So you're going to be an EMT, right? Yes. So I actually graduated from my aesthetics academy in July and I'm in the process of, um, starting my own business and it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about it. It uh, will eventually all specialize in um, scar cover up. So if someone doesn't like the way a scar appears on like their face or like any part of their body, really um, we can help you by tattooing over it and not necessarily like a tattoo tattoo, like a hardcore one. We can camouflage it and make it look like the rest of your skin, which is pretty awesome. Um, That's going to help a lot of people for sure. Yeah, especially like pairing as an EMT, because burnout is so incredibly high in the field, because you just show up pretty consistently to like people's like worst day of their lives. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of EMTs succumb to burnout and, you know, just end up leaving the profession because it's so much to handle. And I hope that like being able to see people on the other side, like, after they've gotten into a really bad car accident, like helping them heal and take care of what they need emotionally through microblading will also be therapeutic for me because I would really love to be an awesome EMT. I'm sure you will be definitely will you have the right attitude for it. And the fact that like, for you, it's more about helping people than anything else. Like, you know, you'll make it really far in your, your profession for sure. Thank you. I am. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited. Um, so, okay, we're going to get into the interview. We're, what I want to talk first about um, is basically your experience uh, being adopted. So you said that you were from Calcutta, but your parents are from the States and they adopted you and then they brought over your brother. Can you talk to us about what it was like uh, basically coming to a brand new family and also to a completely different country? Yeah, of course. So I was adopted when I was very, very young. I was seven months old. Um, the majority of uh, children that came out of India during the 90s, early 2000s were from Calcutta at the time. Um, so far as I can tell with my experience with Indian adoptees, because um, the International Mission of Hope, which was the orphanage I am from, was uh, one of the orphanages that could um, get babies adopted to families faster. A lot of the times they were fighting um, unfair court systems. Mm -hmm. And 
So a lot of the times we would come in super, super um, small and um, without great prenatal care. Like I was less than four pounds when I was born. My brother almost died and he was 2.2 pounds and he was incredibly premature. Yeah. uh, They saved his life there. We're uh, like, we're very proud of them for that. And uh, mom always called him like a little survivor, a little little peanut. And so and the the way they would get us to good families faster is they went through the entire vetting system, but to push through the courts, they said we were disability babies because we were born so young. There was nothing actually wrong with us. Like we didn't actually have any special needs that they'd identified, but because we had health issues so early on, they would write us off as disability and the country would push us out faster. Um, You know, political implications of that aside. And that, so that's basically like the majority of the children that were at your orphanage were kind of in that same category? Yeah, that's what we've been told. Uh, I know there are some adoptees that are definitely like have a few memories of the orphanage, like more adopted at like two or three. But I would say from my experience within the adoptee community, it's much more common to have um, the kiddos from my generation or um, my era of that adoption wave be um, infants when they came to the States. Okay. So now you are in the States and you're growing up there. Your brother comes over. How, how did your brother seem growing up and like, were you guys very close? Like, what? So that's actually like a really, really good question because when I was 12, I was watching my little brother play in the backyard and I was washing windows with my mom, like beautiful, very like fair skinned, blonde hair, like blue eyed mother. Um, <laughs> we're like polar opposites. I love her so much. And I was washing windows with her and I was watching Tondi run around the backyard. And I remember I just like paused and I just had this feeling and I like looked at my mom and I said, I don't think he's going to make it past 18. And my mom like looked at me and she was like, okay, first of all, like, why would you ever say that? Like, don't ever say that again. You know, like a very mom response. And she, you know, told me like, first of all, don't ever let your brother hear this and (laughs) hear you say this. And like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I like just have a feeling because when we were kids, he, um, he actually had sensory issues. Um, and, and I don't really see a whole lot of talk about this, even within like really liberal South Asian communities. Um, like my brother had a learning disability and he was incredibly smart and he was, you know, a great shot. He was incredibly good at like building things he always had a like an eye for target practice like he had very practical tactile skills which I think probably messed a little bit around with the fact because he was so premature that his sensory developed way different like when we were kids I had to be careful when I was playing with him because if I would push him too hard it it would like feel much more intense and I remember at one point they considered well maybe is it like pre-signs of autism, but then he, he was shy, but like he didn't exhibit any other symptoms besides just needing some sensory therapy. And he grew out of that. But I remember when we were kids, he was sick a lot and he would have really bad high fevers a lot. And, um, as he got older and I can like see it in his pictures and I don't know, what it is but like he looks like a very like cute little boy and then all of a sudden you look at one like school year photo and then you look at the next and like something just shifted in him and I don't know what it was but I remember being 
young and just feeling all of a sudden like uncontrollable, like just kind of raw emotion that nobody, including him, really knew how to interpret. And my little brother started going to counseling when he was 10 for uh, depression, and which is crazy. Like, I will never understand that. But I remember being a child and picking up on that and knowing when we moved out to Montana from Oregon, he repeated the third grade. And my parents had him do that because they finally found out he had a learning disorder and they figured no one will know in a new town. Like, he won't be embarrassed. We'll have him repeat third grade. He'll get his confidence. Right. And, and that worked out really, really well. But as a result, we didn't talk about my brother a whole lot. And I'm very much the opposite. I was a performer in high school. Like, speech and debate and singing was my life. So I really kind of, like, made myself more of, like, the figurehead in terms of, like, who people saw more because my little brother was so uncomfortable with people. He was very shy. And I, at the time, it seems like a bigger deal. I didn't, I really didn't want anyone to find out that he stayed back a year because I had been extensively bullied when I lived in Oregon to the point where I got like hate mail. And yeah. And I, like, I knew how cruel kids could be. So when we moved and I was 13, I was incredibly, um, protective of my little brother. And a lot of people didn't really realize I had a little brother um, for like a year or two after we'd been living in Montana because I'd mention him and then I wouldn't talk about him for a long time because it, it was, you know, how do you explain about your little brother and like kind of not mention that he repeated a grade? It, you know, it becomes part of your family story when you move. Now, did you guys go to the same school? No. So oh, okay. um, we never did get to go to the same school because I am three and a half years older than him. But like the strangest part about all this is like a, a whole bunch of my love that I had for my little brother because I had always wondered about my birth parents um, went really, really quietly expressed because he was so angry. He told me that he hated me like every day for a year while he was in counseling. And like, I just like bawled my eyes out over it. And my parents were like, you know, he's going through a really bad phase. We're taking him to therapy, like all this different stuff. You know, my parents were like, I know like all parents who lose their children to suicide um, blame themselves. But really, honestly, like it just breaks my heart when my parents think it's their fault because they, they did everything like. My dad specifically did Boy Scouts with my little brother to like make sure he had friends, even though my dad is also like ridiculously shy. Like um, my mom would just sit and help him for hours with his homework. And, you know, like they fought like kids and parents normally do, but like they poured so much like time, energy, money into like making sure that my little brother got exactly what he needed and Honestly, that's seeing that as an adult makes it easier to deal with his suicide because like I very firmly believe like that wasn't about me. It's very helpful to me to understand that and be able to look back and say my parents really did do everything like we did everything. I purposely tried to be the like best sister I could be and he he still made the decisions he did. In fact, like right before he died, like literally hours before he died, I had a dream that 
he came to me and I could see like who he was. And he was like, I'm in so much pain. I can't stay here. And I was like, kind of in a different chunk of the dream. And I was like, well, you should come here. It's great. And for me, that was being in college because I had just started college. And I was like, just like, give it a little time. Oh, like, so you weren't you even love home. It over here. No, I wasn't even home. I was in college. Oh, so it was in my were- second week of school. It was a Monday. Of course, it was a Monday. Um, so I was talking to him in the dream and I looked over and I saw how much pain he was in and he was like, I need to go somewhere else. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. if you go there, I can't ever see you again. I didn't know where we was. I just knew that I wouldn't see him again. And he was like, but it hurts so much. And then he like kind of unzipped his coat and showed me. And I like saw it. I I remember like in the dream, it made me cry because I rarely cry in my dreams. But I remember crying because I could see what was going on with him and like how far gone he was. And so I just, I remember just going like, okay, you can go if it hurts that bad. Like, I'm so sorry. And I remember it was like, can I write you a letter? I want to give it to you before you go. So I wrote this, um, this letter. And I remember I wanted to do it again and really nice penmanship so he could take it with them. And he was like, I got to go now. And I was like, I didn't even get to say like everything I wanted to. It's not in nice cursive. And I was like, blubbering my eyes out. And he just looked at he just looked at me and he said, No, I know it's okay. Oh my um, gosh. Like, I, I, I know what you mean. I want this copy. And he took it and he said, I'll see you later. And I said, I'll see you soon. And then I woke up and I remember thinking, Oh, that was a crazy vivid dream. Like, I don't even understand what just happened. And then my bishop's wife, because I had just conver- converted to being a Mormon, I don't really affiliate with anything now. Um, she called me and she said, Hey, how are you doing? because our neighbors are Mormon and they heard what had happened because my mom ran over to the house and they came over to see if she was okay because she found him. He actually killed himself on his first day of high school. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, it was really emotional. Um, especially because I feel like I got a lot more closure with my little brother than most people do with suicide. Uh Um, the night before, I knew he was really scared to go into high school because he had texted me like five times, like asking about what certain teachers were like and how to like, if the locks on the high school lockers were the same as middle school lockers. And, you know, I was just answering all those questions and I remember calling him to tell him good luck the night before he didn't answer, but he texted me back. I'm going to bed. And I was like, Oh, fine. Well then I remember thinking, I, don't know if I should text him that I love him because I don't want to be uncool. Like I don't want to be the uncool be like big sister, but I was like, Oh, I'm going to regret it if I don't. And I texted him. I love you. And then the next morning he was gone and oh my gosh. that will always stick with me. And I remember watching like some sappy video in high school where they were like, always tell people that you love them right before mm-hmm. Like, when you think it might not matter because, like, what if that's it? And I remember thinking, you know, that's, like, solid advice. Like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Like, yeah. high school me was just like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. No, so it's always a great idea. It's but always. Yeah, so that's what I did. Was there any sign at all? Like, did your parents, did anybody see it coming? Did they leave a note? Like, did, like, was there any explanation? Did the therapy not work? Like, so we had seen him getting better. Okay. He was on really good terms with all of his friends when he died. 
And so there was like no sign then basically. Yeah. He, he just seemed like he was doing really good, which is unfortunately a sign. Um, the one thing he did do is he offered my current boyfriend whom like he adored, by the way, he like hated everyone, but he liked my boyfriend. He like, at the time we weren't dating, we were just really good friends. He offered him, uh, one of his Batman statues that he really liked. And um, Keenan, my boyfriend was like, no, that's yours. Like, you should leave it. And I was really impressed because it takes a lot for my little brother to like you. Um, and so like, that was like the only other thing. And we were all just stunned that Tondi was even talking to him, like, and texting someone that wasn't, I don't know, like, like, like the internet family. memes, <laughs> like, oh. like, like, like it wasn't, um, like our family or a video game, like right. he, or his cousins, he just like, we were just like, all right, it's natural for him to also rationally want to give someone like a big gift. Like occasionally he was really big hearted like that. It made sense to me. I was like, oh, you want to talk to people and give them your stuff? Whatever. The first one was far fetched anyways. Like, so now do you have like any, any advice for people that are either in his position or in your position where it's like, you know that they're contemplating this or that there's something really serious going on with them. Do you have any advice for people um, basically that where they feel like they have no alternate or for somebody that's in your position where you feel like you need to help, you know, you know, something's off and you need to help. Um, Honestly think that like nearly dying as a baby kind of like minorly, like planted like something bad in just like his like physiology because babies are so delicate to like any you know if you think about it like when a baby is given up at birth you're not actually supposed to be separated from your mother for your own like sake for like development until you are two months old you're supposed to be right next to your mom and if you think about it yeah from like a baby's perspective like you just popped out of the womb. Like that is a traumatic and experience enough for like humans is just like being born as a huge trauma. Imagine as a baby, you've been pulled outside your mom. This is the first time you've experienced any type of stimuli. And then all of a sudden this like force that was wrapping around you is just gone. And it's not supposed to be gone for another two months. Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, most adoptees that are abandoned at birth suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder but it's called pre-verbal post-traumatic stress disorder, I believe. Like, don't 100% quote me on that. But, and that's why some babies have failure to thrive. Is there, uh, like, I honestly believe that adoption is an incredibly traumatic experience. Like, and especially being abandoned is an incredibly traumatic experience for a baby because your body is so vulnerable and then all of a sudden you get hit with PTSD hormones. I, or sorry, like stress hormones. And then I learned this after my brother died, the chaplain officer came to us and he said, you need to drink a ton of water over the next month and a half. You need to drink an excessive amount of water. What? Really? Yes. Because your body is in a like is in so much stress and it's releasing so many stress hormones if you don't flush them out they get stuck in your system when they get stuck in your system your body changes and that's how you get ptsd wow i've never heard that but that makes a lot of sense yeah it changes your neural pathways because ptsd supposedly and like i'm just kind of quoting what i've been told and what i remember is that ptsd is a physical scar inside your brain so to me, a, like abandonment seems like 
one of the biggest PTSD scars that is unacknowledged, like probably out there because nobody thinks about that. No, you would never. And for like a tiny little brain to have to process that, that creates huge like long-term effects, I believe, on the way adoptees develop and thrive because suicide very, very specifically is incredibly high in international adoptee children. Oh my gosh. You know, I honestly, I did not even know like that was like a thing. Like I did not know that at all. So I think that you definitely have just by talking about this helped a lot of people out there that have been adopted or are contemplating that to maybe definitely focus on the bigger picture and on making sure that the child is adjusted. And even just the water thing like that is I have never heard of that before. But it makes a lot of sense. Definitely makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure there's like a ton more science and someone out there like knows the exact specifics and I'm probably like generalizing a bit. But like that's that's what I've been told. And that's kind of like also when I just think about it and like everything I heard and I just combine it all together, you get like a very well-rounded view of the entire situation in terms of like what physiologically abandonment does. And I firmly believe that like my brother did not kill himself in terms of like he like I believe that he did want to die because he dated his um his suicide note he said um signed Tondi Mason and then he put his birthday and then he signed the day he wanted to die he actually died the next day because my parents were home the entire day the day before so he didn't get the chance till the next morning right before school um when my mom was waiting for him in the car And I like firmly believe that those really deep seated issues that came from abandonment really did take him down a dark space. And that's part of why I don't blame him for the decision he made, because I understand like what would compel him to do that. That was not like fundamentally him. Does that make sense? Like, it's like, I would never blame like my little brother, if he died of cancer for killing himself, because like, it's a cancer, like he can't control what's physically inside of him. And, you know, maybe a better treatment would have come along to help the type of PTSD that he experienced. And like, maybe like a new therapy or something would have worked for him. Um, because we're like, because yeah, like if he had like, a certain type of depression that was like, you know, like a very specific type of cancer, you know, like that originated because of the very specific way that his trauma occurred, if that makes any sense, you know? So I would say like to someone contemplating it first off, like I like my little brother didn't even like people and like 200 people showed up for his funeral. And like, I remember we were driving past all the cars and my mom was like, look at how many people came up for your little brother and my dad, like, made this joke, and he was like, well, we all know that Tony wouldn't want to just show up to his own party anyways, because there'd be too many people who'd be like, can I go? Like, do I have to be here? Like, so, you know, even if you think you're, like, no one, th- like, suicide really does devastate your community. Like, in, in ways you might not necessarily, like, realize for yourself, like, there were things that happened that I didn't think were possible. Like my dad was always a really, really cheerful and jovial dude. And now he 
like something has literally gone from him mm. that I didn't even know could be yanked away. To be honest, it's like it's like having like the save chip ripped out of you and like you didn't know that that was like a possibility like I was going to school to be a high school history teacher I never dreamed that I would get a skincare degree and be an EMT but my little brother was in the last class that I student taught and I couldn't go back into a classroom anymore and like that was my life's dream I was so lost when I dropped out of college because I never even imagined a world where like not being a teacher was going to be a thing for me. And like my mom, she can't watch anything with blood. If she sees blood, she has to like leave the room and oh stop watching gosh. because every time she sees it, she sees her son bleeding out on the floor. Like, Oh my gosh. You, like there's so many strange visceral details that like you don't understand. And I don't even mean to make this about your family. If you're su feeling suicidal, like this is just about you and this is your decision and just keep in mind that you're not the one who's going to have to live with that right you, you're not the one who's gonna have to pick up the pieces afterwards and for some of you you might be like well yeah that's kind of the point in which case I would say please reach out and get some help if not for that like if just for you like Look at you. Like, you are a completely unique human being, and I have no idea who you are or what you're thinking or anything because, like, it's just you. Like, you have so much to offer your world that you might not even know about. Like, I like I don't know how to make you feel special, but I think you should try and prioritize trying to make you feel special and, like, a good person and a whole person. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you need to turn yourself into a psych ward. My best friend has been in and out so many times and he's still alive today. If you can just find someone who can understand your pain, like even for a second, like that's something. And it doesn't even have to be like a trained professional or even your friend. Like just somebody that would understand somebody you can talk to and open up to, which would probably lessen the pain, right? It would lessen the yeah. pain because you don't feel as alone. Yeah. Well, okay, so thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story. I can't imagine all the pain that you and your family have had to endure, but I really, really honestly think it's such an important thing to bring awareness to this subject and the whole thing that you talked about, adoption and abandonment and that actually affecting your psyche on a, on a very serious base level uh, that when it comes to, you know, your development later on in life and that, you know, kind of being there always. I think it's so important that people hear that and people know that because then they can feel and understand and not feel alone and stuff. So I, I think I, I really think that you should continue to spread your message and bring awareness. And um, if any of you want to reach out to her, I am going to post her email address in the blog post for this episode. Um, but thank you so much again for being on. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me um, and listening to me just kind of sort out my thoughts as I talk. <laughs> no, it's a really important message. So I think uh, I think you've definitely helped a lot of people today. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you giving me a platform and a voice. It's no been problem. great uh, talking to you, Deepa. No problem.